0: Hi, I'm Carmen Laburge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge.
1: Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen Laburge on Faith Radio.
0: Well, good morning. Um, We're going to start off with some serious news this morning, and I I think that on these fronts, uh, both here in the United States and around the world, I'm simply going to remind us to pray the news. We haven't haven't talked about that recently, but there are many times, a myriad of occasions, upon which really—and I want to say all we can do, but all we can do is pray the news, and that is a lot— And that is enough. God's grace is sufficient um, for addressing even these kinds of concerns. So there has been a partial building collapse um, in Surfside, which is a community uh, very near to Miami Beach. And it's the ocean-facing side of the building. And so in terms of the 80 units occupied in the building, you know, I think we can all assume that the ocean side part of that building was probably occupied at the time of the collapse um the scene the the initial photographs are pretty horrific the the media has been staged far enough away that i do not think we're going to be getting um particularly live on the scene coverage of what's happening during this active rescue um event Near Miami, and so let's be praying for those first responders. Let's be praying that there are not only survivors, but that they are found quickly. Um, and let's be praying for folks just in in every layer of that situation um, and the fear that will that will follow. Um, because when things like this happen, people then begin to wonder about the safety of the place in which they lay their head every single night. And this is an, a very unusual event uh, here in the United States of America. So we'll be praying the news on that front. Also around the world, really um, – Really, just horrible news uh, from the from the UN in regard to the food insecurity situation around the globe. So, the United Nations has something called a World Food Program, and they um, they assess um, hunger in every nation around the globe, and. They raised alarm um, yesterday in a report that they released. There are 139 million people now around the world in what they describe as immediate need of food assistance and nutritional support. And we're talking about literally the least of these around the globe. Uh, The World Food Program uh, said there are 41 million people in 43 countries now on the edge of starvation. 41 people in 43 countries Today, on June the twenty fourth, twenty twenty one, on the edge of starvation, four hundred or five hundred and eighty four thousand are already in the midst of famine conditions. Those countries include Madagascar, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Nigeria, Burkina Faso, and Yemen. Um, and then they then they note that. Um, around the globe, maize prices, we would call that corn, maize prices have soared 90% year over year. Wheat prices are up 30% year over year. And in in many of the countries where these famine conditions exist, the currency has also depreciated, adding to the pressure, driving prices even higher, making it less accessible to everyday people. So there are now, um, you know, adding to the list of insecure uh, food insecurity countries, Lebanon, which we have talked about a lot, Nigeria, Venezuela, uh, Zimbabwe. The list is long. The concerns are many. The people are precious. Uh, the need is great. And so, let's be praying the news on that front. As we go to our conversation this morning with Ben Johnson, um, I I want to remind you about Jimmy Lai. We have talked about Jimmy Lai on a number of occasions, and I think that's probably where we'll start with Ben Johnson. Uh, Ben knows Jimmy Lai personally. We have talked about his imprisonment by the Chinese government uh, in Hong Kong. And yesterday, Jimmy Lai's flagship newspaper, the Apple Daily, um, issued or published its last issue. It's a sad day for democracy. Next up, Ben Johnson here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: This is my right. My right.
0: Ben Johnson is a media reporter at The Daily Wire. You can find him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Ben, welcome back.
2: Welcome back to you, Carmen. Good to talk to you again.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for holding down the fort and uh, keeping Peter company the last couple of weeks. I appreciate it.
2: Well, it's always good to talk to him and always good to talk to you as well.
0: So it's a sad day for um, democracy, uh, particularly in Hong Kong. We are reading that the Apple Daily announced on Wednesday it was closing under the intense pressure from the Chinese government. Um, The assets of the company had been frozen. Uh, Several of its editors had been uh, arrested. And we have talked about Jimmy Lai. Um, Give us an update here on what I think is now going to be the obituary issue uh, of the daily of the apple daily.
2: Yeah, Apple Daily is basically the one newspaper in Hong Kong that wasn't afraid to tell the truth about China. Uh, it was founded by someone who fled mainland China when he was 12 years old as a stowaway, Jimmy Lai, became a billionaire in another industry and after Tiananmen Square, he realized that uh, the the rights and the privileges, the freedoms that Hong Kong inherited because of its heritage uh, as a former British colony were under threat. After it been turned back over to China in 1997, he founded a newspaper that told the truth, and that was too much for China to allow. So they passed a national security law that cracks down on Hong Kong, and uh, on uh, just last Thursday, 500 police officers raided the office, confiscated uh, reporters' notebooks, confiscated their computers, arrested five employees, and as you said, they froze all of their assets, so they had no ability to continue publishing And they said it was, of course, as part of this criminal investigation, uh, the crime that they were charged with is, and I quote, trying to make use of journalistic work to incite foreign powers. So, in other words, journalism was their crime. They were convicted of thought crime uh, and not even convicted yet. These are people who are are just uh, being charged. They are in prison. They've not been convicted of anything, but all of their assets have been taken away and they've been closed by the government because of the fact that they were willing to speak up. and matter of fact, the uh, police officer in the area advised people not to share Apple Daily stories online. He said, I would advise you not to invite suspicion that you are guilty of violating the national security law. Now, this is chilling. I mean, uh, this could be The Daily Wire. This could be Faith Radio Network. It could be your local newspaper. It's any newspaper in the world that has the gall to stand up against a totalitarian power that is increasingly unpopular with people who are rising up trying to demand their rights. They had a target, they've, they've imprisoned its leader, they've imprisoned its owner, they've imprisoned several of its employees, and now they've closed it down with its final issue running on Thursday.
0: All right, back here at home, um, we've got a couple of Supreme Court cases uh, that we've been watching. Do you want to bring us up to date on those?
2: Sure. And and just to, I guess, kind of wrap up on, on Apple Daily, I encourage everybody, you were talking about praying the news. This is an area that is ripe for prayer. I tell everyone, first of all, China has 120 million Christians on paper. And by the end of this decade, it could be the world's largest, most populous Christian nation with a communist government, which means the body of Christ is suffering. So pray for the suffering body of Christ. Pray for the free publication of the truth. Pray for the fall of communism in China and the spread of the gospel, that, uh, that the Chinese Communist Party be replaced by the reign of Christ. That would be Amen. what I would ask for. Amen. As, far as, as far as the United States, uh, you know, we, we do have some Supreme Court uh, cases you were alluding to.
0: Yeah, so um, the cheerleader case we talked about on a prior occasion. Um, maybe just tell us what happened there in court.
2: Yeah, uh, this uh, Pennsylvania cheerleader, uh, is, as we noted in the past, had gone on kind of a uh, profane tirade uh, on Snapchat and uh, the the school punished her. The Supreme Court weighed in eight to one that the, the Supreme uh, that the school district was wrong to do that uh, because this was speech that was taking place. It was not on school grounds. No one was threatened. There was no imminent threat of violence or the like. Uh, this was someone expressing her First Amendment, First Amendment opinions, uh, profane though they may be, outside of school boundaries. And the real question here is how far can a school or how far can a government agency go in policing your speech rights when you're not on their property? So it's, it's, uh, we may not agree with the message that she chose to uh, make her own here. Uh, we certainly wouldn't agree with the, the language that she used as Christians, but nonetheless, uh, the real question at issue here is what other speech might the government or our government agency deem offensive if your child used it? So it may be the exact wording in this case is profane, but uh, there are also some school districts that have a great deal of, uh, of problem with people expressing their point of view on certain what are considered hot button issues like gender identity or, or sexual morality. And could it be that one day they could find a, a Facebook post or Snapchat uh, conversation that one of your children had at home and the government could punish them as well? So this this was a good decision in terms of the First Amendment.
0: Yeah, it's a good. It's a good news story. Um, all right. And then hot pursuit. Let's let's cover this one.
2: Yeah, so uh, there was a a man in California who was uh, playing loud music. A police officer tried to pull him over about 100 yards from uh, his home, and he said he didn't see the police officer, so he pulled into his garage. The police officer followed him on foot into his garage, ended up charging him with DUI. Uh, But uh, the issue here is that if a police officer is following someone – he, if he has the time to get a warrant, then he should do so. Even if uh, someone is going back onto his own property, he does not necessarily have the right to follow you. On, a police officer does not necessarily have the right to follow you onto your property in every case without a warrant. Uh, that's that's good for the Fourth Amendment. Now, there's are some areas where the the justices differ among themselves. Elena Kagan wrote this opinion, and she is a, a, a genius of um, of judicial. Um, a rewriting of of statutes and judicial legislation. Essentially, uh, she was trying to say that if uh, if a police officer knew that the person was guilty of a felony, then he could pursue them. But if it was only a misdemeanor, he couldn't. Uh, Justice Roberts and Alito dissented from that, even though it was a unanimous decision. Uh, I hope that their opinion carries the day, so the police officers don't have to be lawyers as well. But uh, but nonetheless, this is a very good uh, ruling. What it says is there are areas where our constitutional rights apply, even for people who are clearly guilty. And it's high time for the court to recognize the rights of the innocent, particularly innocent life as well.
0: So I'm going to continue my conversation in just a moment with Ben Johnson. We're going to talk about a piece that he has posted at DailyWire.com. Here's the headline. It's a moral freak show. MSNBC says evangelical movement is anti-intellectual, anti-science, moral freak show. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Soul, All, go. All right, continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson this morning. We're going to tee up a, uh, an article that Ben has posted at DailyWire.com. dot um, what Ben? What happened um, on MSNBC's Morning Joe, and why are we talking about it today?
2: Well, on Morning Joe, they had a seven member panel discuss the Evangelical Church, and of course, they were talking about the, uh, particularly the Southern Baptist Convention and its annual meeting, but uh, where, where Ed Lytton was elected, but also uh, talking about the upcoming document, uh, teaching document that's going to be promulgated by the Catholic bishops in this country about worthiness to receive communion. And particularly if you are a politician who's in favor of abortion, that you should not be receiving communion. And if someone who, uh, like the president, comes forward to receive communion, that uh, they may say that bishops and priests should not give him communion because he's in grave sin. So that's uh, that's the the background for this. They had seven people come together, including our our old friend David French, uh, all of whom proclaimed in various ways that the evangelical church, particularly and most Christians in general, are filled with anger, hatred, uh, feelings of inferiority, and in their inferiority complex, and they have turned their churches quote into a moral freak show. So that's that's the ultimate background of it. the uh, The main uh, speaker here was a man who was former uh, Republican. Uh, speechwriter, speechwriter for uh, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and George H. Uh, George H. W. Bush and George W. Bush, a man named Peter Weiner who now uh, writes op-eds for uh, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. He said that, and this is a quote: "A lot of people in the Christian faith have been roiled by grievances and anger, feelings of dishonor by the elite culture. Uh, some of that has been warranted; much of it has not." So uh, there's an almost existential fear of people on the Christian right of the progressive left, uh, and that uh, fundamentalism has overtaken evangelicalism. And this is sort of the money quote. Now that he said that all evangelicals are fundamentalists, here's what he says fundamentalism is. He said, it's characterized by a legalistic spirit, an anti-intellectual approach, an anti-science approach, and a Manichaean view of the world divided between children of light and children of darkness. Now, anyone who's conversant with First John would recognize that second, uh, that last bit about children of light and children of darkness. But uh, in, in our understanding, there are children of light and children of darkness. It's up to us to determine which we are, and we choose that every moment, day by day. This, uh, if this kind of a panel were convened about any other religion, uh, there would be howls of outrage. Their sponsors would be contacted and they would cancel their participation on the network. This kind of anti religious bigotry would not be allowed to take place for any other religion other than perhaps Judaism. It's disgusting that this is allowed to take place on a major network.
0: Yeah, and some of the people engaged in the conversation, I got to tell you, um, surprised me in terms of the spirit in which they they participated because I have heard them speak, including here on this program, um, in other environments with a much more – tempered tone. And so I do think that it's a good reminder to each of us and all of us to speak accurately in every environment, not just playing to a particular audience at a particular time, which is, I suspect, a little bit of what was going on here. I think if, you know, if personally pressed, I have a hard time imagining that Peter Wainer specifically, but the panel uh, writ large, would actually say, oh yeah, we think that evangelicals are a moral freak show. They are evangelicals. Like if pressed, I mean, that's their, that's who they are. So it's, I think it's a, um, it's a conversation that needs to be had because we should have, we should be treating one another appropriately in every environment and not mischaracterizing one another. Um, just because we think, well, this particular audience, let's say MSNBC, is going to sort of giggle at that uh, characterization.
2: Yes, and I think you're right. A lot of them are playing the audience. It's, It's hard to tell if someone's selling out or buying in and in this case uh, you know there's there's a, a an audience obviously that uh, believes the the very worst about evangelicals who are overwhelmingly secular don't know any evangelicals and only know the caricature that goes back five or six decades of christians in this country at least uh, perhaps back to inherit the wind but certainly elmer gantry and all of those kinds of stereotypes that that we are all of the things that uh, that uh, they are saying that we are and in reality Uh, If you go into this church, these are people who will show up in the middle of a disaster. These are people who will show up and and hold your hand in the middle of the night or hold the hand of the dying. These are people who will be there to comfort you and care for you in the worst moments of your life and give you something to hope for, for the best moments. So that's really what evangelicals are. And I'm sorry that 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 truth wasn't conveyed more clearly on MSNBC.
0: All right, you and I have a couple of minutes left. What do you want to talk about?
2: Well, uh, first of all, it's good to have you back. I guess that's Thanks, yeah. that's a big one. Um, in in terms of uh, media narrative, uh, I guess there's there's been a, a kind of a my current beat, of course, at uh, Daily Wire is covering the media. There's been a series on NBC and MSNBC this week about police and uh, particularly. Uh, talking about uh, the rise in crime around the country and how police are dealing with it. And uh, because it's NBC and because of the audience that they're dealing with, they have to cover the reality of the rise in crime, the fact that, I believe, in uh, Portland, murders have increased 800%. Uh, It's a massive spike year on year. Uh, But it's every major urban area, not just one city, every place, crime is up. And uh, it's become a political issue that uh, the left has realized they have to deal with or they're going to lose the midterms. Uh, so they I, they say they say this as part of the series, but they 've interviewed several police chiefs and they they talked to people in Portland and they can 't understand why people in Portland are quitting the police force. they seem absolutely befuddled by it uh, wouldn 't you if you were under constant physical assault for a hundred days or longer or most of a year, and uh, everyone said that you were the aggressor, you were the one at fault and one of the one of the panelists at uh, at this uh, uh during the discussion on MSNBC, literally said the police are guilty. They are the ones at fault instigating the violence. So even on the series that's trying to, trying to cure it, trying to take care of it, uh, you end up seeing them recriminating and blaming the people who were called in. Uh, saying the police are to blame for crimes like saying that diet pills are to blame for ga- weight gain.
0: Okay I thought for sure you were going to um, you were going to tee up a conversation about the Second Amendment and president joe biden 's um, comments at the White House that insurrectionists would need a lot more than guns at home to take on the u s government because after all it 's equipped with nuclear weapons and warplanes and I thought you got to be kidding, we have a sitting u s president basically threatening Americans. Um, with the use of nuclear weaponry against them, should they imagine that they that they ever wanted to transform their own government? So I, I just anyway, that's not what you teed that's out. A great maybe we could maybe we could talk about that next week.
2: Napalm smells like victory to Joe Biden. It's
0: crazy okay I'm not probably not supposed to say that okay I'm gonna withhold that particular commentary all right uh, Ben Johnson thank you as always so very much we will continue our conversation about our rights uh, with the rights writer next week you can find him at dailywire.com we'll be right back Right. So the NCAA, this is uh, interesting in part because everyone is talking about it across the culture, like little old ladies at coffee shops are talking about their opinion about the Supreme Court ruling related to the NCAA and and athletes. Right. College athletes, student athletes who will now have the opportunity to be paid by third parties for all kinds of things, sponsorship deals, online endorsements, personal appearances, the use of their name or their image. Six states, Texas, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, and New Mexico already have laws set to go into effect July 1. Uh, The NCAA has uh, issued a statement yesterday, or I guess, yeah, yesterday, permitting um, college athletes to earn money off their fame and their celebrity. Those rules um, are interim designed to work as a bridge until there's a permanent solution. So that's a that's a quick update. We're going to talk about all of that with Dr. Alan Curitan. He is the president of um, of the university that I serve here, the University of Northwestern St. Paul. But he is a former member um, of the NCAA Board of Governors. And so, yeah, he has some insight on this. We'll be right back with Dr. Alan Curitan. Growing up, I always had a
2: tremendous amount of respect and admiration for people in positions of authority. The kids today don't see it that way. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Our teens have seen it all. They've watched politicians lie and cheat, church leaders fall from grace, and role models make bad decisions. And As a result, teens today have become jaded toward authority. Just because you wear a crisp uniform and a badge doesn't mean you earn their respect. So if your teen is struggling to respect others, be the positive example he desperately needs. It's difficult to talk about respect if your child doesn't think that you're worthy of it yourself. And when they learn to show respect at home, they'll be able to carry it into every other area of life. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: Dr. Alan Curriton joins me now. He is president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. He also spent a number of years on the NCAA Board of Governors, on its Executive Committee, and on its D3 Presidents Council. Um, Dr. Curriton, welcome back.
1: Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you? I am well. I am well. How are, How are you, you sir? good? Good. Good. And uh, welcome back from your two weeks away. Good to have you Thank back you. on here.
0: Thank you so much. So, um, why don't you give us your perspective on the ruling of the Supreme Court related to the NCAA, particularly when we're talking about student athletes being paid?
1: Well, there was a uh, court case uh, in the Ninth District that uh, emerged uh, a number of years ago uh, in regards to name, image, and likeness and also pay, uh, whether or not uh, student athletes should be paid. And uh, the courts ruled. Uh, Out of the ninth district, that students, student athletes, should be paid um, some of their educational related expenses should be offered, and they should be uh, paid a stipend. The court, uh, uh, not we don't understand the rationale behind it, but they said they should get up to about five thousand dollars a month. And so the NCAA uh, pursued again the premise that we're trying to protect amateurism. Trying to protect the true spirit of amateurism, uh, took the court the case to the Supreme Court, and this is what the Supreme Court decided: that that the universities are permitted, if you will, to provide educational related expenses or educational benefits. And so the decision came down in that way. It's, it wasn't about amateurism, which the newspapers are talking about it right now, due to the huge amounts of uh, resources that are generated. Through college football and college basketball, and so uh, uh, the definition. So, what the decision was had to relate with what kind of compensation or what can the universities offer beyond beyond tuition, room and board, and books towards these student athletes, and that's what the decision was all about. And that's now in the hands of the NCAA and its membership, because remember, the NCAA is driven by its members to determine. The course of action they're going to take in response to the Supreme Court decision. So this is, has huge consequences for Division One. So it, just to inform your listeners, the NCAA is made up of three different divisions. There's Division One, which is the institutions you read about all the time, like the University of Minnesota, University of Arkansas, University of Florida, etc. And then there's Division Two, which is a lot of these state um, secondary state institutions, like. Um, it would be um, uh, St. Cloud State here in Minnesota. Uh, 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 it would be Central Missouri, you know, that type of thing. And then you have Division Three. Division III uh, is a mostly private colleges. About 80% of our membership in Division Three are private colleges. And we do not offer scholarships for student athletes. Students play for the love of the game. Uh, academics are the most important thing for a Division III athlete, and uh, but they have an opportunity to compete at that level. Division II does hand out scholarships, generally not full rides, but they do offer some full rides in some sports. So you've got three divisions within the NCAA. Division III makes up 40% of the membership. Division II makes up 20, and the remaining 40% comes from Division One. So the preponderance, the, the, the dominance of membership comes from Division II and Division three, but all the fixation, all the attention is on Division one because they are the ones that drive the financial resources. Now, last point I'm going to share, and then I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. The NCAA has a budget of about $1.1 billion. All that funding comes from the Final Four basketball tournament. So that's where the university or the association uh, generates its income. Of that income, the association will keep about 250 to 270 million to operate the three divisions, and the remaining funds, about 750 million, is turned back to the Division One members for their opportunity to turn that around and give that in the form of scholarships to their student athletes.
0: So when we um, when we think about the NCAA, we're talking about student athletes at colleges and universities across the country in a variety of settings in all kinds of sports. However, mm-hmm. um, you rightly you know you rightly point out most of our brains um, associate the NCAA with like tier one football and basketball. Um, the games we see on television, the hundred and some thousand people packed into a stadium um right. and we think we think about so that's really Division one athletics that we're talking about there, and so those d one schools um I think part of this is like recruiting advantage. When I look at the states that have already Mm -hmm. changed their laws to allow for student athletes to be compensated for the use of their name and their likeness, etc., you know, a lot of those uh, states are in the SEC or their colleges and universities Mm. would be represented in the Southeastern Conference. And I'm thinking to myself, what a huge recruiting advantage they now have over and against colleges and universities in states where the laws have not been changed.
1: Uh, that's going to be true and that's why it's going to be important for the NCAA its membership to determine what's what uh, compensation or what benefits may a student athlete have at all three divisions in regards to their name image and likeness and yet at the still at the same time how do we protect this realm of what we call amateurism and and what's really confusing now is that that the definition of amateurism or what we think of amateurism has just changed over time. Uh, One of the examples that I like to use is that we have professional athletes now competing in the Olympics. We never had that when I was, you know, in, in, in my youth. The Olympic athletes never accepted money. They did it for the love of the sport. They competed. But but now you see you know shoe contracts you see you see clothing sponsorships you see that especially with track athletes or with with uh, specialty sports like volleyball or or others so the, the whole definition of amateurism is changing and then in Division One when you get these incredible salaries that they're paying because of the revenue the revenue that these universities are receiving not only from the NCAA as far as their membership, but TV contracts, because every single one of what we call the power five conferences. So that would be the Southeastern, like you said, the big 12, the big 10, the PAC 12 and uh, uh, the ACC, they all have TV contracts and this TV money, it, you know, has, has made, has changed the name of the game or the face of the game. And so now you have these incredible, incredible uh, resources that universities have to pay assistant football coaches more than you're paying your university president. So people then begin to ask, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you taking advantage of these student athletes? I would argue they have been. I would argue from a division three perspective, when I sat on the board saying you folks, you know, there's a, there's a freight train coming down this track and it's going to hammer us. And I said, we need to change the emphasis at the NCAA. So that Division Two and Division Three have more of a voice, because Division Three really represents a spirit of true amateurism, where students play for the love of the game. But Division One, golly, you know, Carmen, it's so easy to be seduced by the resources, the funding, the prestige, the you know, the the visibility, and there's you know, there's a ram- there's a cause and effect. So when Villanova. Wins the NCAA basketball title, or or Gonzaga is in it. These two little schools uh, in the you know in, in Philadelphia and Spokane, Washington, their enrollment goes up. You know they're they're you know students start you know they go to the University of Alabama. They want you know, success drives success. So you know I understand why the university presidents do this, but at the same time, um, you, all of a sudden you got boosters telling you what to do. You got TV contracts. You know you got coaches. That you know are making eight, nine, ten million dollars a year, and you you know the university president. And the university president, you know, you look at Arizona State. Arizona State with seventy five thousand students, they have a budget of well, you know I, I assume somewhere between one two and one point four billion. You know, and the university president, you know, maybe makes you know seven hundred thousand. And you're saying to yourself, "That's a lot of money for educational. Sure, it is, but who, who, you know, when you run an enterprise of one point four billion. You know mm-hmm. they're the okay so now you got coaches right. and, and so so for the well, general coaches
0: public... you do have coaches being paid a lot more than university presidents oh, yeah. in some cases oh, yeah. I mean like by oh, yeah. hey Dr. Curitan I hate to interrupt you but we have to take a quick break when we okay. come back we're going to continue our conversation I'm talking with Dr. Alan Curitan he is the president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul we'll be right back Continuing my conversation with Dr. Alan Curitan. we're talking about the NCAA. Um, we're talking about, well, we're about to talk about college and university life in general. But I thought, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Curtin, I would, uh, I would be sure that folks understood the difference in the pay scales um, from college coaches to college and university presidents. So, if we just take the University of Alabama, um, Nick Saban, who is the uh, football coach at the University of Alabama. Um, is scheduled to make nine million one hundred thousand dollars this year for his efforts. Louisiana State, so LSU, is paying their football coach nearly nine million dollars. As is Clemson University, paying Dabo Sweeney uh, over eight million as well. Michigan is paying Jim Harbo over eight million dollars. Texas A&M paying uh, Jimbo mm-hmm. Fisher. Seven and a half million on and on and on there's there's no university or college president in the country making anything close to that I mean the the President of Harvard makes three and a half million which still sounds like an awful lot of money but not when you compare it to what coaches are making um, the recognizable mm. names I mean I could have told you the name of the coach of some of these places there's no way I would ever come up with the name of the university president and I think that when we talk about like right how the how the schools are known and what they're known for it's not academics right. and it's not What's happening, you know, in the in the C-suite, so to speak, it's what's happening in the coaches' uh,
1: corner. Right, right, and and in all, you know, in support of the public opinion and public perception, um, I believe the universities at Division One are taking advantage of the student athletes. Mm -hmm. And so here again, but you want to protect, you know, what they're giving the student in the form of tuition and room and board and books is a significant commitment uh, on that part and the students need to take advantage of it for a number of these student athletes it is an opportunity for them to gain a college degree um, if they utilize that path and take that path and use it to completion Uh, I think it's appropriate to add some type of compensation in addition to that so I'll give you an example the uh ROTC, the Reserve Officers Training Corps, it comes out of all four of our major branches of our military, provides scholarships for students who are, who are preparing to enter into the military with their ROTC scholarship. And so the commitment on the part of the government towards these students is that they provide tuition, room, and board, and books, and a monthly stipend of $500. In the same spirit, why couldn't the NCAA, why couldn't these Division I schools, allow the same thing for their student athletes that are generating these kind of resources. And so I've always argued from the perspective, why don't we replicate that at the division one level? The problem is is that the division one schools that are not part of the power five can't afford it, Carmen. So they mm-hmm. block, they block legislation. They block efforts to make that happen because they, they want to be in division one but when when you're at Chico State, when you're at Central Arkansas, when you're at Northern Colorado, you can't afford that. I, I was at a, a summit that we were talking about this very issue at the NCAA offices, and I was representing Division Three. There were two of us there at that summit, Division Three, two from Division Two, and I heard the president of an institution at Division One with twenty-seven thousand students say, I cannot afford the 13 sports that I have. And I looked at him and said, "I have 21 sports at Northwestern, and I have no problem funding it and monitoring it because we don't do the scholarships." I wanted to turn to him and say, "You need to join the Division 3 then." But they don't they want to be on Division 1. They want to be able to see the ticker it's ticker across the bottom of the ESPN that said, you know, that this state school competed blah 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 because they want to be associated, but I'm thinking to myself, you can't afford to be in Division One. Why are you even in Division One? But it's all about status. It's all about visibility, name recognition, et cetera, and also pressure from the alumni.
0: Well, that's pressure what I was going to say. The it, I mean, isn't that university perform? president?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Isn't that university right. president afraid of losing his yeah. job if yeah. he even suggests that his school give up its D1 status?
1: No, no question, Carmen. No question. The power and influence of the alumni to dictate what happens at the institution. So Clark Kerr, many years ago, the president of the University of California system, said the three responsibilities of a college president is to make sure the faculty have parking, that uh, <laughs> students have great food service, and that the alumni have a winning athletic program. He said that's the whole point of being a university mm. president. And, you know, that you say it tongue in cheek, but the pressure, you know, of, of, uh, of a strong athletic program in the view of alumni who can be, you know, can be proud and brag and that type of thing when they go to the water cooler at the office, you know, that's significant. is significant. Anyways, but let's go back to the real issue. How do we, how do we protect the student athlete? How do we serve the student athlete and and how do what's fair and what's right? So this recent decision, then the Supreme court is all about educational benefits. What what the NCAA is permitted to do. It wasn't about amateurism, even though the newspapers are saying that. It was about what can the NCAA members do in regards to educational benefits. The court also found that the NCAA should be subject to antitrust analysis. So, you know, we we can't operate as if we're an entity unto ourselves. So we have to have to do that, especially when it comes to student-athlete compensation rules. And so there, there are certain things that we now have to do at the NCAA I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what Division One does, Carmen. I, you know, greed. Man, greed just runs deep. It runs deep, and and it puts. Uh, you know, you and I both know as followers of Christ. It, you know, it, it does. It alters your, Alters your thinking, and so therefore you can rationally come to an irrational decision about what you want to do or what you should do like pay a coach $9 million. Who's worth $9 million? I mean, that's a crazy. Yeah. That's just crazy. crazy. One of and our, that's exactly what one of our,
0: you'll appreciate one of our listeners texted in gasp when I read that list. All right. We have to leave it right there, Dr. Curitan. It is always such right. a joy to talk with you. Come back again. Um, Yeah. Just um, thank you for all that you're doing every single day at the university. All right. So that is university president, Dr. Alan Curitan. You can find him at UNSWP.edu. We'll be right back. All right. We've got another hour of mornings with Carmen up next. We've got uh, our friend, Peter Kapsner. Yes, we are going to... um, just visit with each other about everything that's going on in the world. We're going to talk about tithing. I know that sounds crazy. Um, You know that it's a thing. Come to find out that's actually a surprise to people in the culture that tithing is a thing. And then Christine Kane is going to join us. We're going to talk about her brand new book, how did I get here? So that is what's coming up in the next hour. Don't forget that this coming Sunday, um, we are hosting our first Conversations with Carmen live stream event on the Faith Radio Network's YouTube and Facebook pages. You can get all the information by texting the word event to 877 877- Nine three three two four eight four, 933 2484 or for visiting us or by visiting us at myfaithradio.com. We're going to go ahead and start taking your questions that I might answer during that live stream. So you can text those questions in to 877-933-2484. You can say, hey, here's a conversation I'd like to have with Carmen. Tee up a question for our live stream event this coming Sunday evening. All right, we got another